Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. Now, here's Pastor Josh Butcher with today's message. Uh, All right. Uh, Well, welcome again uh, to Vertical Church. Uh, If you came in a few minutes late, my name is Pastor Josh. I'm the lead teaching pastor uh, here at VC, and, and we're just excited that you're here today. So let's just uh, let's just dive right in. We're in the middle of a series. We're actually right near the tail end, actually. Next week is the last week of our Sacred Cow series, uh, where we're just talking about things that a lot of churches don't talk about. A lot of churches just kind of skip over and never really mention. And we're we're tackling those uh, those topics and those issues. Um, matter of fact, we actually, everything that we've talked about, we asked you to inform us. Like, what what do you think it is that churches don't talk about or don't spend much time uh, hitting, and, and that's kind of how we arrange the whole thing. And so today, uh, you picked this topic, I didn't pick the topic, so if you want to blame anybody, blame yourself. Um, before we dive in, because it's going to be fun, before we dive in, try to keep it light, try to um, uh, keep, you know, keep us laughing. What do you call, we've got a cow joke, what do you call, uh, what, do you, what do you get when you cross a Smurf and a cow? What do you get when you cross a Smurf and a cow? Anybody know? Blue cheese. All right. Look, it's week five. That's the best I got. Okay. I've had, this is the fifth cow joke. There's not that many cow jokes. Although our sound guy, Larry, is a, is a, is a, a, a well of cow jokes. He shared it with us before. This is some pretty funny stuff. Uh, I should have asked him. I said, hey, Larry, help me out with the sermon. Give me some cow jokes. Um, I want to give you an upfront confession today. I'm probably going to disappoint you. I may even offend you. Today, we're talking about in the church, the sacred cow of politics. Politics in the church, that's going to be a fun topic. But I want to let you know upfront, part of my disappointment may be in the fact that I'm not actually going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you which party you should be affiliated with. I'm not going to tell you where you should stand on political issues and legislation. I'm not going to talk about marriage, immigration, taxes, abortion, or any of the other things that you think of when you think of politics. I'm going to take it in a completely different route, but I still have to be really careful or else I will offend someone in this room unintentionally. Now, there is a certain level where if I'm offensive, I actually am intending to offend. Uh, but, you know, that's, that comes with the territory. See, in, in our culture, in America in particular, we live in a world of sound bites. We live in a world of Twitter, where if you can put together 140 characters and get a few people to follow you, then you become somehow, some way informed about world events. And what has happened, particularly in our, in our culture, is that, is that we trust our preferred media outlet more than we actually trust the Bible. <laughs> that, that we allow, whether it's, you know, whether you're a Fox News person or an MSNBC person or a BBC person, I don't know. Maybe you listen to NPR. I don't know. But what we have a tendency to do in our culture is we trust our preferred media outlet who's talking in sound bits and, and, and sound bites and just giving us pieces of information, we end up trusting them more than we do our own pastors. And so oftentimes, Fox News and MSNBC, in fact, are actually our pastors and not our pastors. And so when I talk about issues like politics, I have a tendency to offend people because I'm actually talking about your pastor. You know what I'm saying? 
You follow? We're all tracking on the same page today. All right. Um, in, in America, it seems to me that we have grown more and more passionate about political issues while at the same time becoming less and less well-informed. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, we're real passionate about our causes. We're real passionate about our, our, our guy or our girl. And yet, we really don't know that much. Uh, we, we condense everything down into what, listen, some of the things that we say politically, can I just be honest with you, in the church, because I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook, and the things that some people post on Facebook, at one time in our world would have sounded absolutely extreme. Like, way extreme. Like, who, what are you talking about? And now it's just common. It's just commonplace. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about so we can all be on the same page before we really dive in. In our landscape, in, in, the, in the political landscape of our world, but even in the church, people can't just be wrong. <laughs> you can't just disagree with somebody. No, no, no. We have to, we have to demonize them in the process. We have to make them seem like some kind of cartoon-like evil villain. And we have to paint that picture so that, so that we are good and righteous and whoever we disagree with, they are evil and vile and the spawn of hell. Seriously, just go on Facebook. Like, that's the conversation. And that's not good, all right? That's where I want to start with. That's not good. Dare I say that's not even Christian. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not healthy, y'all. Like, we have, a, we have a warped view. Listen, you know we live in a narcissistic country when your leaders are either Messiah saviors or the Antichrist. <laughs> but this is the world we live in. Our leaders, we peg them depending on who we vote for and who we don't vote for. Either they are the Messiah come to save us or they are the devil incarnate. And that's not good. It, because we can't just disagree. We've lost the ability to disagree. We have to make someone out to be the devil in flesh. And that tells me we have an ego problem. In America, we have an ego problem. And I can tell you how I know this for a fact. In a recent study, we discovered, no, we discovered, I didn't do the study. I read the study. I think Lifeway did the study. More people pray for their sports teams to win on Sunday than pray for the president of the United States. Okay, let's just let that sink in for just a second. More people are praying that the Cowboys win than praying that the, the president is safe and secure. That's a problem because, again, if we just go to our, our actual, you know, God-breathed text, the Bible, it instructs us to pray for our leaders. Nowhere does it instruct us to pray for our sports teams. Pray that the Redskins do really well today. You know, no, 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 nowhere. And yet we have a tendency to, to do that. And so what I just want to say today is that's not good. That's not healthy. And when, it, when we come into the church, what our goal for you is, is to be healthy. In whatever area and arena of life that you're functioning in, we just want you to be healthy. And so today, that's how we're going to talk about uh, politics. How can we be healthy? Because... Like, you've seen the commercials, right? Like, it's political time. It's that season. We've got midterm elections coming up in November, and our TVs are being overrun with political ads, and you're seeing them on, you know, your, your social media, and you're seeing the signs come out. And it seems to me that, does it seem like anybody else, like, our conversation is all about blame and accusation. 
You know what I mean? Like any debate that you watch or any commercial that you see or any radio advertisement that you hear, isn't the message almost always it's their fault? Like it's their fault. They're the ones to blame. You know, you know, if we have a problem, the problem is in D.C. And, and so we'll like rally around leaders who say, look, the problem with our country is in Washington and we got to clean up Washington. Or they'll be in the state. The problem with the state of Virginia is in Richmond. And if we could clean up Richmond, we would have some progress. And you know what's interesting about that? Nowhere in the entire landscape does anyone say, look, the problem with our country is in me and it's in you. But you know what does tell us that? The gospel. Jesus tells, that's Jesus's message. You see, Jesus's message is the problem is in your heart. <laughs> we have a problem called sin and it's our sin and your sin and my sin that nailed Jesus Christ to a cross and caused him to give his very life. The problem with our world is in our heart. And yet politics says, no, the problem with the world is them over there on the other side, the people you disagree with. You see, the gospel identifies the problem in us. And when we encounter the gospel, it produces in us a humility that says, I need saving. I need to be saved. I have not arrived. I am not perfect. I do not always get it right. I need Jesus. That's what the gospel produces in us. But politics produces in us, I am completely sure that I am right and I do not need saving. They do. They are wrong. They need to get right. And so, you know, the, the, the reality is, did, did Jesus wrestle with any of Like, was this, is this a new thing or is this something that Jesus himself actually dealt with? And the reality is, yes, he did. It's a great question. Let's go back to the first century. I want to paint a picture for you this morning of the first century world that Jesus lived in and ministered in. So, you know, if you're a, if you're an imaginative person, you may want to close your eyes or just kind of daydream while I paint the scene for you. Okay. Imagine that we are in first century Israel. Maybe, maybe we're in and around Jerusalem even. And just kind of picture all the movies that you've seen and make it just like a, a conglomeration of really bad Bible movies and, and the gladiator and you'll be okay. All right, just put those two together and whatever that forms in your head. Right, we're, we're, we're in first century Israel near, near Jerusalem. Rome is in charge. Rome is the, the world power. We are Jews living in, in Israel with a degree of freedom, certain degree of freedom, but the reality is we are certainly under Roman oppression. We're really nothing more than glorified slaves, okay? We, have, we can go where we want to go, but the reality is if Rome comes calling, Rome's going to have their way because they are the power. And as good God-fearing, God-believing, God-seeking Jewish people, we are waiting on a day. We're waiting on a day that our ancestors and our forefathers and foremothers called the day of the Lord. We're waiting on this day when, when God comes and, and puts the world to right. We're waiting on the day when, when the Lord comes and, and embodies all of our hopes and dreams and, and brings ultimate freedom from oppression including the Roman oppression. 
and, and God will come, the Messiah will come and he will overthrow Roman rule and we will be free Israelites. We will be free Jewish people. Now in our room full of Jewish people in the first century, there are people in this room who have different opinions on how God's going to accomplish this. There are some people, uh, because I want to you know, help you, let's, let's call this the right and this the left. I've got to try to remember that because that's different for me, but that works for you. So over here on the right, we have the zealots. The zealots are passionate. Like, like you guys, you are passionate people. You love Israel. You're a nationalist. Excuse me. You are a Jewish nationalist. You have a passion that is unwavering. And you're so devoted to your country that you are willing to take up arms against Rome. Now, Rome would crush you in a second. But you are, you are so sure that God is on your side that you are willing to take up swords and shields and fight for your freedom. You're all about national security. You're all about personal, individual rights. You don't like the government being too involved in your affairs because if they are, they look like Rome. You tracking with me? You're on the right. You're the zealots. You're going to expel Rome by force if necessary. You can kind of figure it out. What I'm referring to here, politically, continuum, if we think about this, is the far right. Kind of hawkish. <laughs> kind of, kind of um, you know, all about national pride, national security. Got to bring back our country to God. That's, that's you guys. Now, on the exact opposite side of the spectrum, we have the tax collectors, now, the tax collectors, they are not Jewish nationalists. They are Jewish. You guys are Jewish, but you've sold out to Rome. And you collect taxes. And in fact, you raise taxes to line your own pocket. Because the, the, the Roman government says, you have to collect this much. And then you say, well, I'm going to collect that much plus a little bit more so I can fund my big, nice penthouse on top of the hill and be real wealthy. And so you're all about increasing the tax burden on, on the, the lower class, middle class, upper class. You don't care. You just want to line your pockets. You are traitors. You are sellouts. You have completely given away all of your Jewish identity to the Roman government so that you can prosper. You are what we are going to call this morning the political far left. You're on the, on the, on the far left side. You're compromisers. You're willing to just go and, and let the government do whatever the government wants to do to rule and reign over our country. You're the far left. So we've got zealots on the right, tax collectors on the left. And it was common in our day, because we're in first century Jerusalem, remember that. It's very common in our day for zealots to assassinate you guys. It's common. In fact, there's a prize if a zealot can take out a tax collector, they'll be rewarded. And so they're constantly on the lookout for how the far right can attack the far left. And now because the far left is being attacked, they're constantly not only on the defense, but they're on the attack too. So both sides are attacking each other, trying to kill each other. This is the world we live in in first century Israel. Zealots on one side, tax collectors on the other. You guys in the middle, you're just Pharisees. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, 
So let me, let me ask you this question. What do you think people started saying when this guy Jesus comes along and he starts calling his disciples? Hey, I want you, hey, you want to follow me? Hey, come, come. Why don't, you, why don't you join my group and follow me and I'll teach you how to live life? What, what do you think people started thinking when Jesus said, hey, Simon, you're a zealot. Why don't you join my team? And oh yeah, by the way, Matthew, the tax collector, you're in too. And so in this tiny group of, of, of disciples, there's a guy named Simon who is a zealot, ideologically pure, restore our country, kick the government out. And there's Matthew, the tax collector, sellout, traitor, let the government do whatever the government wants to do because we are under Rome and this is the only way we're going to live and survive is compromise. Now, Jesus has invited both of these guys to come sit with him and eat fish around the table. <laughs> what do you think people were saying? What, what, what do you think the whispers were? Let, let's jump out of our first century world and just go in today. What, what would happen <laughs> if Chris Matthews and Fox and Friends got together at Long John Silver's <laughs> for lunch? Like, what would the conversation look like? How would the fireworks just start exploding? How quickly would they drop their fish and be at each other's throat? Okay, let's just, let's just be honest and real. And yet when we read the gospel, when we read the accounts of Jesus, nowhere is there one argument between Simon and Matthew. Nowhere. There's not, there's not any friction. There's not any argument. Simon didn't try to kill Matthew. Matthew didn't try to, to extort money from Simon. Nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, the letters of Paul, nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us that Simon and Matthew had any kind of conflict. Why? That's, what, that's the question I want to ask. Why? And I'm convinced it's because both guys were so captivated so enthralled by a message that was so much bigger than their party that they gave their entire lives, even their opinions, to this message. They, they surrendered and submitted all of their life to this message. And what was that message? Well, I've been kind of trying to figure out, you know, what one passage really it just encapsulates everything that Jesus was about. And this is what I've settled on. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. If you have a Bible, that's cool. If you don't have a Bible, you can check it out on the screen behind me. Jesus has just come out of the wilderness. He has um, he's been baptized by John. He went to the wilderness to be tested. He's come out of the wilderness, walks into the synagogue, grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and here's what he says. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then look what Luke adds, verse 20. He adds this. He says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, which is a first century way of, Je of saying, Jesus dropped the mic. <laughs> Just dropped it and walked off. 
and there wasn't an eye that wasn't staring at him. The entire room, it, let's, let's just imagine we're back in that setting. Our entire room is hushed and silent as we're all full of conviction and, and, and you could hear a pin drop. It was so quiet. Everyone in our room knows that something different has just happened. Someone different has just walked in and spoken in our room. Someone has given a vision of something so totally alternative than anything we were looking for. And yet it seems like this guy has the power to actually do what he says. Well, if you were a zealot, that would be really captivating. And if you were a tax collector, that would spark your imagination for what could be. Everything that they were looking for was right there, all wrapped up in Jesus. And once you caught the vision of Jesus, once you caught and encountered the person, it was impossible to settle for a pale alternative of the future. It was impossible. Whether you were a zealot or a tax collector, your, your ideologies and your, your visions of the future that you would accomplish pale in comparison to this guy standing right in front of you. Because it's uncomfortable to talk about the future when the future is staring at you in the face. And there he is, the future, looking at you, Jesus Christ. And so the number one thing Jesus talks about all throughout the New Testament, and he talks about it in a lot of different ways. The number one thing, it's not love, it's not heaven, it's not hell, it's not forgiveness, it's not even money necessarily. The number one thing Jesus talked about is what he called the kingdom of God. He said, he, he says repeatedly that the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by that? Well, he's not talking about, you know, the second coming of God and God establishing heaven on earth. No, he's not talking about that. In some ways, yes, but, but the reality is what Jesus is saying is that there is a realm. It's, it's hard to even describe it. There's this way of doing life. There are, there, there, there's this mindset, this, this worldview, this, this belief system, this loyalty. There's this different world available right here and right now. He calls it the kingdom of God. The reality where God reigns and rules unopposed. The reality where the, where, where, where the kingship of God himself, the creator God, no one is challenging and no one is denying and no one is, is, is puffing up against. Jesus says that reality is right here. It's, it's so close you could touch it. Now, just do a quick survey here, real quick. If you'll just uh, listen to me as I read, I want to show you how often, just real briefly, Jesus talked about this. Luke chapter 4, verse uh, 43. Uh, Jesus says this. Um, he's, he's healing people and he says, he, he's wanting to go to other towns. And he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So Jesus says, look, it's not enough for me to 
talk about the kingdom of God. Here, I've got to go everywhere and spread the good news that God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rule, God's world, where, where, where he is unopposed, is right there. Like, you can, you can touch it if you just reach out. Flip over to, to chapter 8, verse 1. Um, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So wherever Jesus went, his one message was the kingdom of God is at hand. I know that you're stuck on this on this continuum of right and left, but the kingdom of God, which is completely different, it looks at the, the line and says, we're up here. Like you're, you're thinking down there and down there, but I'm up here somewhere. He says it's at hand and he's going along. Look at chapter nine, just flip over chapter nine, verse two. He's sending out um, uh, his 12 disciples to preach in different towns. And it says he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So there is certain, uh, there's a certain component of the reality of God coming into our world that includes some kind of healing. In other words, Jesus says, look, you're on this continuum of right and left. And I want you to know that world is sick. And so when I come and establish my kingdom and proclaim my kingdom at hand, there is a certain level of healing that needs to take place. And when he commissions his disciples to go out and spread the news, he says, I want you to tell them about this reality. This reality that I'm calling the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God. Look, go on with me. Chapter 10, verse 9. He's sending out uh, the 72 followers, again, to preach and teach in houses and stuff. And look what he says in verse 9. He says, heal the sick. There's a certain way that the kingdom brings healing to sick people. And he says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. This reality of God has come near. Jump all the way to chapter 17, uh, verses 20 through 21. Look what happens. Once again, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Pharisees, even you're asking about the kingdom. <laughs> You're so interested and enthralled about this message that you're saying, well, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And look how he responds. He says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or, or another translation says, the kingdom of God is within you. There's this reality of the love of God. Even Pharisees are looking for the kingdom. And sometimes it's impossible to see it. Because it doesn't come with drama and hype and pomp and circumstance. And you can't point to it and say, there it is, or, or, or here it is, or look at this. But, but any time that, that, that people gather together who are loving and worshiping God, the kingdom of God is there somehow mysteriously. Whenever people are, are loving their neighbors in the light of Jesus' love for them, he says the kingdom is there. It's in your midst. It's in your presence. And that's what I want you to talk about. That's what I want you to proclaim. And so my task as a preacher, every preacher's task, is to take a room full of zealots and tax collectors and point us to a kingdom that is beyond our world. Point us to a reality 
that, that is beyond this, beyond the arguments, beyond the us versus them, beyond the, the, the who's in and who's out, beyond the it's your fault, no, it's your fault. My job and, every, and our job is to proclaim that there is a reality beyond this. And to so be captivated and drawn to that, that even if we are Simon or Matthew politically, we give up all of our rights to serve the kingdom. That's the message that Jesus preaches. And that's what it means to talk about politics in the church. But this is tough business. This is tricky. Because we are really committed to our political sports teams. <laughs> we are. And here's the, here's the thing that breaks my heart. In America, the body of Christ is divided over American politics. We, it is not good that Christian men and women cannot sit down to lunch together because they disagree about issues. That's not good, and I'll say it, that's not Christian. It's not. It's not healthy, and it's not right. Look, Jesus invited a zealot and a tax collector, and he said, I want you both to come and follow me. You know what that tells me? That tells me the far right can be followers of Jesus, the far left can be followers of Jesus, the loose middle can be followers of Jesus, and we can all sit down at a table together, enjoy meal together, and proclaim the kingdom of God together. That's what it tells me. And so when, when I look at the church and we seem divided, that breaks my heart, and I think it breaks God's heart. And so I want to share with you two things about the kingdom, two foundational things real quickly, and then I'll be, I'll be wrapped up. Number one is this, the kingdom of God is not of this world nor from this world, but Jesus is Lord over this world. Let me say that again so you can catch all of those prepositions. The kingdom of God is not of this world nor from this world, but Jesus is Lord over this world. Jesus is being questioned by Pilate right before he's crucified. He's been arrested, and now he's on trial before the, the, the Roman government official. And he says this in John chapter 18, verse 36, when Pilate is pressing him about his role and specifics about this stuff, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. Friend, there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world, and there is the kingdom of God. And the two are diametrically opposed. But the kingdom of God is not from or of the kingdom of the world, though it does exist in the kingdom of the world, because you and I are in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot of prepositions, a uh, lot of directions. The kingdom is in the world, but it's not of the world, and it's not from the world. And Jesus proclaims that he is Lord over the world. Any human system, be it political, economic, social, financial, governmental, even ones that use religious language, any system built by human hands will disappoint you because it's not the kingdom of God. Any of them will ultimately disappoint you. And none of them can promise what they say they promise. None of them can change the world because the only thing that can change the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. 
You can promise all the hope and change that you want to promise. The only hope and change that can, can, can be affected is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've heard it said in, in political seasons that, that the hope of the world is America. No, it's not. The hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ being so captivated by the message of Jesus Christ that we will do whatever it takes to tell the world about the good news. Like that's the hope of the world. <laughs> that's the only hope of change. Because why? Because the problem is not out there. The problem is right here in my heart and in your heart. And the only solution to a heart problem it's Jesus. It's the gospel. Please understand, I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't be involved. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't campaign. Don't do all of those things. Do them. If you want to do them, do them. If you feel passionate about it, feel passionate about it. But understand this, as, as, as kingdom of God people, we don't vote one day every four years. We vote every day because God is not concerned about election day more than any other day. And the message of Jesus is not, re, is not confined to one day. It's for every day. And so we vote every day. Is Jesus Lord? Yes. <laughs> That's my vote. Jesus is Lord over the world. I'm going to vote that every day that I'm alive. Not just get excited about one election in one day. Because we're called to live every day for the glory of God. Last one right here. Number two. Cross-shaped love is the way of the kingdom. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is where I'm going to step on your toes. And this is where I'm going to offend you. I'm going to let you know that up front. Cross-shaped love is the way of the kingdom. Now, this idea is found all throughout Scripture. You can find it in all kinds of different places. But I, I've settled on Luke chapter 6 to really get at the idea. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Another way of saying this, that cross-shaped love is the way of the kingdom, is that you can't build God's kingdom with the devil's tools. You know what the scripture calls the devil? Accuser. Why? Because he accuses. So we have to be really careful about how much accusation we let stew in our hearts. We have to be really careful or else we will be overcome by the spirit of accusation. And what I mean by that is we have to guard against a disposition that is, that is, that is all wrapped up in my rightness and your wrongness. You can't build God's kingdom with the devil's tools. You can't build God's kingdom with accusation. Even if what we are saying is true, even if we are right, if our disposition is one of accusation, then we are using the devil's tools. You can't build God's kingdom with the devil's tools. If our attitude is not, is not shaped in love and grace, then we are not shaped in the form of the cross. And cross-shaped love is the way of the kingdom. I, I, I came across this quote while I was studying this. And, and like I said, this is going to sting a bit. And that's why I'm quoting and not giving you something original because if you're mad, I want you to be mad at this dead guy, not me. Send him an email. He'll get back to you really quick. 
This is from a guy named John Wesley who lived in the 1700s. He's the founder of the Methodist movement. 1774, October 6, 1774, he said this about an election. Look what he says. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them. Three things. To vote. Look, I'm not telling you don't vote. Go vote. Man, if your heart's telling you to vote, vote. Look what he says. Vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Look at the issue. Look at the potential candidates and say, here is the person that I feel is most worthy and vote. Like that's what John Wesley said. He said, do it, like go. But then look what he said, number two and three. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. Number three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Amen or ouch, church, that's truth. In times like these, our spirits can get sharpened to people we disagree with. And that's not good. It's not good. It's not healthy. This is the problem that we face when we talk about politics in the church is that our spirits get sharpened to people we disagree with. It's not good. And instead of having a heart that melts with the love of God, we have a heart that is, that is sharp towards those we disagree with. And I would dare say when our hearts are sharpened, that our hearts are grieving the heart of God because our hearts are not shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ who said, love your enemies. Bless them. Pray for them. If they disagree with you, bless them more. Don't let your heart be sharpened. You see, in politics, it's always us versus them. Zealots versus tax collectors. Right versus left. Uh, Republicans versus Democrats. Pro-life, pro-choice. Pro-marriage equality, anti-marriage equality. Whatever the spectrum is, it's always us versus them. And the gospel says, don't let your heart get sharpened. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Bless them. Look like Jesus. See, our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is what scripture says. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against a government or a president or a senator or a, or a congressman or anything like that. Our fight is with the rulers, the authorities and powers of this dark world, spiritual forces in heavenly realms. Our fight is against an enemy who has the entire world enthralled and ensnared in his trap. And he would like nothing more than for us to divert our attention to focus on them out there and how what right we are in here. Because we won't be fighting him anymore. We'll be fighting each other. So whatever your opinions are, man, be they political, ethical, social, whatever, our one task as kingdom of God people is to point people to an, a, a reality that is other, that is different, that is totally not this level of life. 
and to live a life that is characterized by that love. And it looks like Jesus laying down our life. Whatever your opinions are, if you don't look like Jesus carrying a cross to the hill of Golgotha to lay down your life for someone, you are wrong. You're wrong. If you don't look like a human flesh nailed to a tree, you're wrong. That's the gospel, friend. That's what the Bible requires of us who are proclaiming the name of Jesus. Look like Jesus. Lay down your life. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so, so here's my prayer for us. That our hearts would be so captivated by Jesus. Captivated by this kingdom that is other and different and not like this world at all because it's not from the world or of the world but our king is ruler over the world that our hearts would be so mesmerized by his grace and by his kingdom that we would lay aside all of our rights to pursue his world his reality and that in in the same turn we would turn our focus outward to those who are not in the kingdom care where they're at on the spectrum we got to show the love of God to a world that is desperate to a world that's seeking alternatives seeking seeking the fulfillment that only God can give that's our job and maybe here today you came to church and you're not there like you're not part of that world you're not part of the kingdom of God You've never heard a message about this kingdom that is other and different and not on the spectrum of us and them. Today, I want to invite you. The door is open for you to come in. There's a seat at the table for you. And you can join zealots and tax collectors and Pharisees all around the table of God. Because there's a seat open for you. You can bring your baggage with you. You can bring all of your ideologies and all of your opinions and you can bring them to the table with you because when you get up from the table, you'll be so mesmerized by Jesus that your only message will be Jesus, His kingdom, His love, and His grace. Let me pray for you this morning. Lord, we come here today recognizing that there are those of us in the room who are Uh, political opponents, if you will. There are those of us in the room who would disagree on a number of different issues. There are those of us in the room who look more like Simon, zealots. There are those of us in the room who may look more like Matthews. And yet, Jesus, when you call your disciples, you call them from all parts of this world take them to another world. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you do that for our hearts? Lord, sometimes it's real easy for us to be caught up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a fight that we don't have any business being in. Sometimes it's real easy for us to get caught up in an argument that we don't belong in. 
and sometimes, God, it's real easy for our hearts to be sharpened. You know, it's what I want to do today. While you're, you, you everybody just have your heads down and your eyes closed. First thing I want to do is I want to invite you. You say, I don't know Jesus. I haven't given my life to him. I haven't invited his life in me. I don't know what you're talking about when you talk about the kingdom of God, like there's this other reality, other world. All I know is I came in this place a broken person and I'm just looking for hope. I'm looking for a second chance. I'm looking for, my life feels dead. I'm just looking for a second life, looking for another chance, a second opportunity. If that's you, friend, I want to let you know the door's open for you. There's a seat available to you. Jesus wants to welcome you into his kingdom. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of seats open. So if that's you, would you just pray with me? I'm going to lead you in a prayer, man. And there's nothing special about the words that I'm going to use. I just want to I want to have, maybe, maybe my words can become your words. You say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for raising from the dead for me. Today I receive your life. Make me new. I want to sit down at the table beside you. I want to walk through the door. I make you my king, the one who, the one whose way of living I want to adopt. I want my life to look like yours. I recognize that I'm broken. And I, and I know, God, that there's something inside of me telling me that you, Jesus, can put the broken pieces back together. Circumstances have shattered my heart my emotionally I just feel shattered on the inside friend Jesus can put the broken pieces together and he can bring healing when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom remember he healed the sick and some of you today you've walked in and you're sick in your soul Jesus can bring healing to you right now you don't have to leave this place broken the same way that you walked in This king can put you back together. Maybe you felt like Humpty Dumpty and you fell off a wall somewhere and you felt broken. This king, oh, he can put you back together. And then there are others of us in the room, man. Gosh, we're so easy, so, so easily fall into the temptation of allowing our hearts to be sharpened. And I just want you to, I want you to just invite the Holy Spirit of God right now just to melt your heart, to dull your edge. <laughs> Lord, don't let our hearts be sharpened against those we disagree with. For you did not call us to fight against any people. You called us to fight for them. We are not called to fight against our neighbors. We're not called to fight against opposing parties. We're called to fight for them in the name of Jesus. So God, keep our hearts fresh 
pliable, soft. Holy Spirit, guard our hearts against becoming hard with a sharp edge towards those that we disagree with. And keep us shaped like the cross. We love you, Jesus. This is a tough message for us to hear, but help us to apply it, to take it in and become more like you. In your name we pray, Lord. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate hearing how God is moving in your life. We all have a story to tell, and we'd love to hear yours. Please visit verticalchurch.tv and click on the little pencil icon called Amen Corner to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry of Vertical Church financially, you can do so by clicking the giving link at verticalchurch.tv. Thank you again for taking the time to join us as we point those far from God to life in Jesus.